Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our midweek assembly time. We're, uh, we're having a kind of devotional that we've been doing for the last several weeks, and uh, we're glad that you've joined us. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we're going to be studying tonight from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, so go ahead and open a Bible and turn over there. Uh, we'll be spending all our time in Galatians 5 and 6 tonight, uh, but appreciate you uh, tuning in and joining us uh, tonight. We're going to be thinking about uh, some things that I think we'll find very practical as uh, we think through uh, how God expects us to live, things God expects us to work on as He is at work in us. So in Galatians 5, I'm just going to start by reading uh, the section that's going to uh, have our attention tonight. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. Galatians 5:16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. So we're in Galatians 5, for those who are just tuning in and joining us, and uh, we'll be focusing on this latter part, verse 16 to 26. So just a reminder of uh, what's going on in Galatians. So Galatians is a letter Paul writes to the Galatian churches because he is concerned that they are leaving Jesus for another gospel. That gospel, so to speak, uh, involved uh, circumcision and keeping the law of Moses in addition to believing in Jesus. So he writes this letter to say, you just need Jesus, just follow Jesus by faith. But what's clear in chapter 5 is as he's kind of finishing up addressing all of that, is that there have been some attitudes and some hard feelings that have surfaced through all of this debate. Some people uh, were talking about freedom, you know, we're no longer under the law of Moses, so we're free. And yet he says there in verse 13, uh, don't use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So at least there's some thought there that uh, they're using this as an excuse to do whatever they wanted. There are also some hard feelings going on between Christians. In verse 15, he talks about if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So in our section that we're studying, Paul talks about where all this is coming from. And I think that's an important idea for us. You know, where do these kinds of problems Character problems, doctrine problems, all these things come from. And he says specifically, they come from a battle within us. In verse 17, he says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. So he says there's a battle between, I think the spirit here is the Holy Spirit, and our flesh, that is our desire to do evil things. And those battles that go on within us are going to be won and lost in, in one direction or the other. So he is saying to keep those things from going in the direction of the flesh, we have to do our part. So he says in verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So God is trying to do a work in us through his spirit. And he says, you do your part by following the spirit, walking by the spirit. So when the flesh wins, it looks a certain way. And that's what Paul is describing when he talks about in verse 19, the works of the flesh. And we won't go through all of these, but I think we know the general tenor of what's said here. There is the idea that there's sort of a debauchery, a letting loose, a no more restraints. There is hatred, there's false worship, there's anger. There are all these things that uh, the uh, relationships we have fall apart, so there's friction and division. And he says all these problems in your life and all these awful things that we end up doing, those are all signs that the flesh is winning. So he says, if you follow the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. There is a different path, and this is the path God calls us to and is trying to empower us and work through us to get us on the path of following the Spirit. And so he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22, and that's what we're going to focus on for our time tonight. The question is, what does it look like when God's Spirit lives in you? And that's what I want us to think about. What kind of life does that produce? When God's Spirit lives in you. So when we talk about fruit of the Spirit tonight, what we're talking about is at the same time, it's two things at the same time. For one, these are things that prove God's Spirit is in us. And at the same time, it is also an action plan. For these are the things that God's Spirit is leading us to do and to pursue. So it's a proof. There's confirmation here. And there is also action that is needed. Especially, I want to stress tonight that if you and I were to discuss what are the marks of a true Christian, what does it mean to really follow Jesus? I imagine that we'd probably come up with a list that said something about you believe these things, you know, and there would be a list of doctrines or beliefs. We would probably talk about baptism somewhere in there. We might talk about church attendance or something like that. And what we would do is we would come up with a list that would not really involve these things, the fruits of the Spirit, that we could fulfill our list and yet not have the evidence Paul talks about here. And the reason I say that is not so that everybody can say, oh no, Jacob said something really controversial about the fruit of the Spirit. I'm saying instead of thinking about it as, you know, is this doctrine versus character, I think we need to take it as a time for self-examination. Am I living out in my life what God says the fruit of the Spirit should be producing in my life? It's a time for self-examination. So I wanted to break this down into three areas and talk about these fruits for a few minutes tonight, give you some questions, some thoughts that will help all of us to try to have a direction for what we should be doing when God's Spirit is alive in us. First of all, when God's Spirit lives in you, you view other people differently. So in verse 22... Uh, he talks about the first fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the idea of having as our goal the betterment of someone else. If I love you, I'm thinking about and acting for you, which means I act differently than if I didn't love you. Because if I didn't love you, it wouldn't be any concern about you at all. It would be concern about me. Several of the works of the flesh, and by the way, we're going to notice tonight that a bunch of the fruits of the Spirit are contrasted with a bunch of the works of the flesh. You'll see that as we go through. But several of the works of the flesh center around improper treatment of other people. So you've got things like enmity and anger and envy and jealousy, 
See, in situations where we are jealous or we are angry, then we view other people in a certain way. We view them as a rival or a threat. But love is different. Love is that I'm I'm not threatened by you. Instead, I want to help you. And that's the change that the Spirit makes in us, where no longer are we threatened by people, no longer are we comparing ourselves with people. Instead, we want to help you. We want to help one another. Look in verse 13 of Galatians 5. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, through love, serve one another. Don't compete, don't fight, serve. That's what love does. How can I help you? How can I be good for you? And a little later in chapter 6, he's going to say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Show love in your relationships. And that is a different way to view other people. So what we do when we love is we ask this question. Love asks the question, how can I help bless and strengthen you. Other people don't exist for me. I am here to help them. So I'm not just looking at my relationships for what I can get out of you. You know, can I get pleasure out of you or validation out of you or belonging out of you? I just want to love you and serve you. I want to help you and bless you and strengthen you. So my encouragement to all of us is as you start your day, Ask yourself this question about the people that you're going to encounter in your day. How can I help them and bless them and strengthen them? How can I show love for them? Verse 22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Now, peace in the context of this chapter has to do with peace with other people. It's not really about internal peace as in I am at peace within myself. You see, he warns them in several places about being at odds with other people. He tells them in verse 15 not to bite and devour one another. We've talked about that already. He warns them, this is verse 20. Look at all these words. He talks to them about strife and rivalries and dissensions and divisions. All of these things speak to a breach in a relationship. We are not at peace. And that is not the way the Spirit teaches us to treat and view other people. We are not to be continually at odds. So he says down in verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's be at peace. And peace asks the question, how can I create peace with you? How can I go out of my way to do something that's going to help this relationship stay intact? And the good thing about peace And so we can practice this all the time. In fact, it seems to me that when you start thinking about your relationships in terms of being at peace with people, you see how many opportunities you have every day to be at odds or to be at peace. So we get to practice making peace with our spouse or with our children. We get to practice making peace at work. We get to practice making peace in a local church. We get to practice making peace when we interact with people online. Wherever there are relationships, there are choices we make to pursue peace or to pursue our own agendas. But what peace is going to mean is that sometimes we create peace by giving in, by saying, I don't want to fight about this. I would rather you win this little argument than us continue to be at odds. Sometimes 
we have to keep talking through something so that we can get to peace. Sometimes we have to forgive each other and just say we're going to move forward and we're going to let that be in the past. But as you start your day and as you work through your day, ask this question about the people that you encounter. What can I do to promote peace in the situations that I'm in? That is a different way to view other people. In verse 22, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And I want to pick out the word kindness there. And then in verse 23, my version has the word gentleness. Yours might have meekness or something like that. But I want to lump those two together, kindness and gentleness. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday when we talked about how we talk to people. Sometimes our tone matters. These are about tones, kindness and gentleness that are contrasted with harshness. And there are ways that we communicate hostility by the way we talk to one another. I think this is also what Paul means when he talks about biting and devouring one another. It's a really vicious image. And sometimes our language is really vicious. Kindness and gentleness changes that. He also talks in the works of the flesh about anger and outbursts, which I think would be eliminated if we were to practice kindness and gentleness. So kindness and gentleness ask, how can I treat you with warmth? Warmth. Maybe that comes out in a gesture or a tone of voice. Maybe that's when you are angry and I meet your anger with something that is calming. Maybe it's that I let you have your way when I could protest about it. I read this quote. Uh, I came on this quote Boy, it must have been 15 years ago or so, uh, in uh, Mike Willis's commentary on Galatians. And I think it is a tremendous description of the idea. He is focusing on the word kindness here in the list. This is what he said. There are some people who are extremely caustic in word and action. They are constantly hurting other people. The good that they do is undermined by the manner in which they do it. They are like a surgeon who uses an axe instead of a scalpel. Other people can say the same thing that they say, but not alienate the one to whom they say it. These people's actions toward others are so warm and tender that friends are drawn to them wherever they go. And I love that picture because I think we all know and have probably been at different times that kind of caustic person who even when you do good, you undermine the good by the way you do it and the unkindness that you show. But then we also know people who wherever they go, they draw people because they are always so warm and kind. So I view you differently when I say, how can I go into this situation to treat you with warmth? That's kindness and that's gentleness. That is a product of the Holy Spirit living in us. Also in verse 22, you have the word goodness. And goodness is akin to generosity or benevolence. It means that we're willing to do more than what's required. So there is what justice would demand, and then there is what goodness does. Goodness goes beyond what is required. So in verse 13, remember we've read this already, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we are not using freedom anymore as an excuse to do something bad. Instead, we use freedom as an opportunity to do good. And he talks about this a lot of times, particularly in chapter 6, 
where he says things like, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And he says, we, we who receive the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Or he says, as much as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. Do good in all of these situations. Goodness asks the question, how can I go above and beyond for you? How can I bless you? How can I give you something that is good? Not just what you need, not just what's required, not just what I have to do, but what can I do that is actively good? I have heard someone describe it as surprising others with better ways than just what would have been expected. So the question that we we ask when we open our day thinking about goodness is, what am I going to do today that will be a blessing for someone else? How can I really help them by doing something more than what's required? So I hope you get the picture, though, of these five things that we've talked about, that when God's Spirit works in us and lives in us, it transforms our relationships. And we become a different kind of person because we're not seeking from others something to get, but we are looking for ways to give, ways to show kindness and love, ways to make peace, ways to be kind and gentle. That's what happens when God's Spirit is at work in us. Those are the marks of someone who is spirit-filled. Second, when God's Spirit lives in you, you view life differently. By the way, I've got all of this on one slide tonight. I could not really think of a good picture to illustrate the Holy Spirit, so I thought it would be best to just go with the blank slide, but I do have a whole bunch of words that we're going to put on here. We're going to fit the whole lesson on this one slide, so Sorry for the uh, lack of beauty in the graphics. I guess that means we need to get rid of the guy who makes all the PowerPoints. So uh, when God's Spirit lives in you, you view life differently. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Joy is the idea of contentment and happiness that's independent of circumstances. So something has happened to us that puts everything else that will ever happen to us into perspective. Something that is so great that the problem of our lives is forever solved so that whatever situation we are in, we can be content. Now, he even talks a little bit about what that is back in verse 1. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we've been set free, and you can imagine... If you had been through a a hard life of slavery and you are liberated, how that might affect your mood for the rest of your life. You know, that would always be a moment that you would appreciate and remember. So even when unpleasant things happen, God expects that his children are going to be a joyful people. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice in Philippians. So joy asks the question, what can I celebrate What makes me happy? How can I see something good, something to rejoice in, even in dark moments? And boy, that's a powerful thought for our time when there is so much that is negative and people are frightened and we have uncertainty and anxiety. And to look at what God calls us to as a joy that supersedes circumstances. What can we celebrate in our time? So joy looks backward to the cross and the deliverance of the cross. And joy looks forward 
to the return of Jesus and the hope of eternal life that we have. And joy looks inside at the changes I see the Spirit making in my life. And joy looks around at what I see God doing in my family, what I see God doing in my spiritual family. And it looks around at my community and the broader world and says there are things that are going on that are worth celebrating because they are in some small way reflecting a world where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Someone is thinking, yeah, but can we really rejoice all the time? You know, there's a lot of sad things. And that's true. And Jesus talks about mourning. There are things to mourn. But God consistently tells us that His Spirit brings joy and life and freedom. So it seems to me well worth our time to start our day asking the question, what can I celebrate? What good do I see? What can I rejoice in? And let that be the tone for how we choose to see our lives today and each day because God's Spirit is working in us. Verse 22 also talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. There are a couple of different words the New Testament uses for patience. This is the one that we would call long-suffering, the ability to suffer for a long time in pursuit of a goal. We might say it's endurance. That is, we put the current trouble we're in in a bigger context. That the trouble we're in now has a shelf life. It's only going to last for so long, and I am pursuing through it something greater. Turn the page to Galatians 6 and verse 7. This is a good example of the patience he's describing. Galatians 6 and verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone and to especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul talks about a couple of things here, like, like the farmer sowing in hopes of a harvest someday in the future. So we sow to the Spirit in hopes that someday we'll reap eternal life. And he says in verse 9, we don't grow weary because in due season, when the time is right, we will reap if we do not give up. That's patience. That's long-suffering. That's endurance. So this question, the question patience asks, is what goals make temporary discomfort bearable? What is it that I'm looking forward to? What am I building toward? What are my goals that make things that are not great right now okay? And we're familiar with this. Uh, We see it with athletes. You guys remember what athletes are. We used to watch them do things in sports and stuff. But Athletes would work hard because they had a goal and they worked toward the goal. And in that work, there is a deprivation and a self-control. Paul even talks about that. Students work hard. They've got a degree that they're pursuing, a career that they want. And so they work hard and they study and they sacrifice and they devote themselves to that because they have a goal. And we do this with some regularity. You know, maybe we save money because we have something we're saving toward and building toward. Maybe we want to, you know, someday we want to buy a house. We want to be able to do that. And so we we put aside money and we save and we struggle so that eventually we can reach our goal. 
That's what patience is, to put up with an uncomfortable situation because there's something that will make it worth it. But this question, what goals make temporary discomfort bearable? It forces us to get specific about what it is we're working on and working toward and why whatever we're going through right now is not the most important part. Sometimes we really struggle with that. Sometimes we let the temporary discomfort make us wreck our budget. We let that temporary discomfort distract us from what we're building toward, wreck our diet or wreck our plan for our lives. So I encourage us to start our days looking at our goals, goals for our spiritual life, goals for our character, goals for our family, goals for our relationships, and of course, goals for our relationship with God. Verse 22, back in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Faithfulness is the idea of keeping our word. When we are faithful people, we do what we say. So when we make a promise now, faithfulness is that part of us that says, I'm going to keep it later on in the future. And all of us have a series of commitments that we've made that way. We've made commitments to an employer or to a spouse or to our kids or to our friends. And in that way, our past forms our future because those commitments, now we have to decide whether we're going to make good on what we said we would do in the past. And when we say we are faithful, that means we are people who promise that we will do what we said we would do before. And this is where a concept like duty enters into things. We may not feel the same way now that we did when we made the commitment. That that happens in a marriage, that happens with relationships, that happens with making commitments of our time. But we're going to be true to our word because we are faithful people. And we learn that from a God who is faithful and keeps his word. Now that has a really important application here in context. In verse 24, it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we have committed, this has already happened to us, those who are Christians, that we made a commitment that we were done with the life of the flesh. We crucified that man. And now the question comes, well, am I going to live for the flesh again? Faithfulness says, I have made this commitment, and today and tomorrow and the next day, I will continue to keep that commitment. We have obligations to our brothers and sisters, and so we do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith, even when they irritate us or they don't really deserve it. So faithfulness asks the question, what commitments must I keep? What have I said that now I need to make come true? So at its heart, faithfulness is about the nitty-gritty of making us into the person that we have said in better moments that we want to be. We made those commitments because we knew this is what we needed to be and wanted to be. And now, now we have to make the choice to fulfill it. So I want you to see how all of these things work together, that we view life differently. When God's Spirit lives in us, we have life that we view with joy and life that we view with patience. We're no longer just immediate gratification. Uh, We are faithful. We know that there are things that we have made a promise to do that now we're going to follow through with. We become more like Jesus. We have a broader view of the context of life 
when God's Spirit is alive in us. Well, we've got one fruit left, and I want to leave this uh, for our third point here, which is you view sin differently. And we need to talk about the last fruit in verse 23, which is self-control. Self-control looks at a lot of the things in that list of fruits of works of the flesh, verse 19 to 21, and just says, no, I will not do those things. I will not just give in to the flesh. I will be in control. And when I say we view sin differently when the Spirit is alive in us, this is what I mean. With the perspective of the Spirit, we know what sin is. Sin is not just a fun time. It's not just a release. We know from experience and from being taught by the Spirit that sin comes with horrible consequences now and horrible consequences eternally. So because of that, there comes a commitment that I will do whatever is necessary not to go back down the path of sin. I've been down that path and I do not want to go all the way down it. I will walk in the Spirit and I will discipline my body. So self-control, the question self-control asks is, what greater things am I saying yes to? Self-control is about self-denial, which is the idea of saying no. I'm not going to do this anymore. But it is also about saying no so that we can say yes to better things. I want to explain what I mean. I mean that when we say no to something that we know is wrong, we know is sinful, we are saying yes to a different kind of goal, a different kind of pursuit. So when I say no to a wrong sexual relationship, I am saying yes to being a man of character. I am saying yes to being faithful to my vows and to my wife. When I say no to addiction, I am saying yes to being a man in control of my faculties with every thought of mine captive to Christ. So when I am in control of myself, I am saying yes to service and yes to character and yes to eternal life and yes to sowing to the Spirit. And day by day, choice by choice, bit by bit, I am becoming the man God is calling me to be. I am building my character. That's what self-control is. To say there are some areas that are off limits if I want to be the man I know I want to be. So self-control says, what greater things am I saying yes to? And I really want to emphasize that. If all we're doing is saying no, 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 eventually we're going to get tired of saying no. Eventually that message is going to grow stale. But if we can continue to see where we are headed and who we want to become, and we continue to grow up into the image of Christ, then it seems to me there is a powerful motivation to say, I don't want to get sidetracked on the incredible work God is doing in me just because I had this occasional impulse to do something wrong again. He says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So self-control is how we live that out. We have crucified the flesh. And the Spirit does not lead us to give in to the flesh again. He is leading us in an entirely different and a far better direction. So what greater things am I saying yes to? This question leads us to think about who is it we really want to be and where we are really headed. And the Spirit says there are more better things in life than just giving in to the flesh. 
There are higher goals that are worth more and they're worth the temporary sacrifices of self-control. Verse 25. In verse 25, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Yours might say something like, let's also walk in the Spirit. This is an important idea, and I I, want to leave you with this. Paul is saying, this is who we are now. We are a people in whom God is living. And we are a people in whom God is working to produce these different kinds of view of others and view of life and view of sin. He is making us into different people. So, now comes our part. He says, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Or let's walk by the Spirit. Now we have the opportunity and the obligation to live out what the Spirit is leading us to. So the way that works is that that we're fighting all of these battles. All nine of these things that we're talking about, we're fighting every one of them. And we can gain help from the Spirit of God to truly make the changes that we are seeking to make. We can also gain help and strength from one another. In fact, that's the reason why right after this section, he starts talking about if someone is is caught in a trespass, we restore him and we bear one another's burdens and that we sow to the Spirit together and do good to one another. But I want to encourage us all this week to think about as we get up in the morning, as we frame our day, how we're pursuing these things. And I encourage you to ask yourself these questions. Think about how you are viewing other people differently and what you're going to do for them, how you're viewing your life differently and how there's a a longer view than most in the world have and how you view sin differently. And it's no longer just uh, saying no to some of those desires. So let's pray together about that and we'll be done with our time tonight. Our God and Father, we thank you so much that you have blessed us with opportunities like these to open your word and to understand it and to think about what you want for us. Father, so often we are distracted from the work you're trying to do in us. So often we're drawn into our daily lives and the tasks and responsibilities that we need to fulfill. And we lose a sense of the bigger picture of the growth that you're trying to produce in us. Father, we thank you for this time that we could be reminded that you have a work you're doing in us, both as individuals and as a congregation. And Father, I pray earnestly that you will bless and help each one of us as we try to live out the things that you're trying to promote in us and bring out in us, that you'll help us to show kindness and love and serve one another, that you'll help us not to get caught up in the worldly view of this life, but to be willing to go through difficult times in pursuit of something greater and to trust that someday we'll reap if we don't lose heart. And I pray, Father, that you'll help us to control ourselves so that we can see the greatness of the image of Christ that you're calling us to and so that we can be motivated to become different people as you work in us. And in all of this, Father, we give you the glory and the praise for all that you do for us. We ask that you'll continue to bless us as a congregation, as at this time we're not currently meeting and we're separated, that we can be one in spirit, even though we're not together in body. 
And I pray, Father, that you'll help us to be unified and focused together on your word and your will for us. Help us to live for you even in these difficult times. Please be with us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.